Father, we praise your name for just how much you love us. And God, we stand before you eager, eager to hear from you. God, uh, we pray that nothing is better than you. Well, Lord, we want that to be more true at the end of this service than it was at the beginning. God, that we know that nothing is better than you. So show us, God, through your word, show us how good you are, how great you are, and that truly there is nothing we can withhold that would be better than having you. God, so we surrender ourselves in this time and we bank on the fact that you promised to be with us always. God, so we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in King Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Folks, we're going to continue our uh, series in Romans uh, today. Um, That was um, Barry and Luke and Noah who were leading us in uh, worship by music, so um, thank them sometime for just leading us. I I look up here and I, I just can't help but think about that these guys are like divine provision for the worship of this church and how they've been brought together, how they've been brought up. Uh, the Lord really wants His people to worship in song, <laughs> and uh, He is providing for that. So we can give thanks for that this morning. Uh, so Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, we've got some Bibles on the back, so if you don't have one of those, uh, you can grab one. I think it's on page 549. Uh, Romans chapter 6. All right, well, raise your hand, folks. Raise your hand if you are like me and you have asked a bad question before. Like a capital D-U-M-B question. Yeah? Yeah, has anybody done that? Oh, man, that's like, that's like my M.O. I do it all the time. I've asked some really capital D-U-M-B, all caps, uh, questions, all right? Um, and one of those, I remember I was in college in a lecture hall full of about 400 other students, and um, I raised my hand to ask a question of the professor, really bold. I thought this was a good question. I mean, to, answer, to ask a question in front of 400 of your other peers, right, you got to know this is a good question and everybody wants an answer to it. So I raised my hand, I, uh, the professor acknowledges me. I asked the question, the professor then says, class, what's the answer to that question? (laughs) And a few dozen people pipe up and answer the question for me. Uh, I had not done my reading that week. (laughs) It was in the reading uh, that I had done. Well, you guys, Paul starts off with a question here, okay? And in some ways, it is really absurd, the question that he poses. And what he does, he uses this, he's like, he's great at debate, right? He's great at, at persuading people and getting his point across. So what he uses is what we call a proleptic argument, right? Nobody has asked this question, but he has foreseen that this might be a question or even an objection that some people have. So let's take a look at what he says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and the first part of uh, verse 2. I'm actually going to start in um, 
chapter 5, verse 20, uh, just to connect it there so you can, we can remember like what has generated this question. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So what I want to do is kind of take Paul up on this, um, this imaginary opponent, this imaginary uh, dialogue partner that he has, and I want us to think about it like this. Like, Paul is speaking to you or speaking to me, right, while we are asking this question and we're kind of going back and forth with Paul. And uh, because I'm like a classic um, uh, asker of D-U-M-B questions, all right, we're just going to say that this person is me, all right? So Paul, he says this beautiful thing that grace abounds all the more where sin increases. And, and you know, I'm like, Paul, um, wow, that's that's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that, that's amazing, right? I mean, where sin increased, my sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, Paul, let me ask you, um, so should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? No! What, what do you mean, Josh? <laughs> like, like, no, you know, that's really, that's probably the that is not a great question, Josh. Okay, um, okay, Paul. So, uh, so why not? You know, well, uh, first of all, Josh, uh, your question is just—it's the scenario doesn't make sense for the Christian who has been justified and reconciled to God. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that they would continue in sin. All right, Paul. This is kind of new to me. All right, so please explain. And by the way, I feel like I usually ask pretty good questions, so I don't really like that. But anyway, uh, so, so Josh, it's not realistic because a true Christian will not, much less, will, they will not continue in sin. They will not want to continue in sin. So the scenario, it doesn't correspond to the new reality, right? The new heart that is created upon conversion. I mean, how can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, that, that's, that's a good point, Paul. That's a really good point. But like, what happens to a Christian that makes the thought of him living a lifestyle of sin or living in sin, in sin so, so absurd and so unrealistic? Like, what, is, what does death to sin even mean? You said, how can we who died to sin still in it? Like, how, what does that even mean? And, and, and what does that have to do? How does that relate to living in sin? Like, Paul, I really need you to connect the dots for me. Okay, Josh. Now you're starting to ask some better questions. Now, let me explain that to live in sin, it means that you have a lifestyle of sin. That when somebody looks at your life, they see more sin than they do obedience. More sin than they do righteousness. So this to live in sin means that you are in a lifestyle of sin. And someone with the Spirit of Jesus living in them couldn't possibly have a life characterized by sin. 
So Paul, uh, so Josh, let, let's back up. I'm going to back up a little bit, all right? And we're going to start from the beginning. We're going to lay a foundation. And that's where I want you to read with me starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like this, like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over you. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, Josh, so, brothers and sisters, Christians, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Identity, how we see ourselves, is so important, folks. This is one of the reasons why this sermon, this text is so relevant. We need to see and hear and understand what Jesus says about us so that we can consider ourselves the very same way that He considers us. So the first answer to the question, right, why would the Christian not continue in sin or even want to, is first revealed in verses 2 through 5, and it's that Jesus' death and resurrection are yours by grace through faith. Hallelujah. Jesus' death and resurrection are yours by grace through faith. Now, where does this come from? It comes from some of these key phrases that you guys can read with me. Starting in verse 3 baptized. You have been baptized into Christ. You have been baptized into His death. Verse 4, you have been buried with Him. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, you will be raised. So what does all this mean? I mean, it's kind of strange, right? We're talking about, but when we usually talk about baptism, we talk strictly about water baptism as this symbol, very important symbol, this ordinance that Jesus has handed down to us that represents a spiritual reality that has occurred in our lives. Well, the answer to what all this means is in verse 5 in the words, united with him. That's the gist of it. That we have been united with Him. You see, there's a tight correlation between this baptism and having been united with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We're united with Jesus' death and resurrection. So the reason that baptism is used here is not so much to explain or describe to us like how we are united with Christ, but that we are united with Christ. 
Baptism, one author says, functions as the shorthand for the co-conversion experience. The whole thing can be described as a shorthand in baptism. We're talking about repentance and faith and indwelling of the Holy Spirit and water baptism. This one package, right? This one package package. And for Paul, that those things would be somehow separated was inconceivable. So when he talks about baptism, he's talking about the whole conversion experience, right? Galatians 3, 26 and 27 hammer this home for us. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? This is not just an affiliation with His people, but a salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Christian, why would you not want to sin? Why is continuing in sin, living a lifestyle of sin, so ridiculous? It's because first, Jesus' death and resurrection are yours by grace through faith. That's point number one. Okay, Paul. Josh has another question here. Paul, I mean, this is mind-blowing. This is beautiful. But you're going to have to connect some more dots for me. Okay? So why does it matter that we're united with Jesus? Right? Like, like, what does that have to do with our not living in sin or ever even wanting to live in sin, to live a lifestyle of sin? And Paul would respond with what we see in verses 6, 7, and 9. We can sum it up like this. Jesus' death frees the Christian from both the penalty and power of sin. So being united with Jesus' death and resurrection means that not only has the penalty of sin been put away, that we do not have to die this spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, right? The penalty for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. Not only is that penalty put away, not only are we freed from paying that penalty, we are freed from the power of sin. That's why it's ridiculous that a Christian, a true Christian who has been justified by God, who has been reconciled to God, who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, would not even want to continue in sin. Josh, this question is absurd. It is capital D-U-M-B. Now, the reason why I say that death, free Jesus' death frees a Christian from the power of sin, we find it in the fact that in chapter 5 that Corey preached last week, and now in these verses in chapter 6, sin is personified as a dominating force that controls us, right? In chapter 5, reign, the reign of death, the reign of sin, right? We're talking about, uh, uh, we're talking about regimes and kings and forces and powers that reign over us. In verse 7, we read the words, enslaved to sin. And in verse uh, 14, sin has dominion or mastery over us. Sin is personified as this force that dominates us and controls us. Now I want to stop for a second 
because this is very offensive to a lot of modern minds. Not just modern minds, but ancient minds. This was a hang-up from the very beginning, since the first time it was preached. Me? (laughs) I'm not a Christian, but I'm not enslaved to sin. That's ridiculous, right? Dominated by my sinful passions? Come on. Get real. I'm an educated man. But folks, this is exactly the first half of the message of the gospel. Cheer up. You're even worse than you think. That's the first part of the gospel. You're even worse than you think. Your condition is even worse than you could possibly imagine. You are enslaved to sin, and you are bound for death and separation from God unless God does something for you to rescue you from that death and free you from slavery. You see, the gospel is so good. People come in here and sing about it, right? It's so good because the situation that we're in before Jesus is so, so bad, right? And understand this, that the appreciation, your appreciation for freedom in Jesus, for friendship with God, your desperation for deliverance from this sin will never go any deeper and will never be any greater than your acceptance of the fact that you are enslaved to sin. This is where it starts. This is why we sing. Why we want to hear more from pastors and preachers and teachers. Tell me how good the gospel is. I want to know. Because I know I'm enslaved to sin. God has convinced me of this. Cheer up. You're even worse than you could possibly imagine. Romans 6 and 7 has something to say about this. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's a funny way of talking, right? What are we talking about here, Paul? Body. Well, we can see that the word he uses for body is this cool word called soma, right? And Paul uses soma in a unique and specialized way. He's not just talking about the physical body. He's talking about the physical body, but he's not talking just about the physical body. He's talking about our whole self, our whole self that interacts with the world through our body, our person, which includes our body. And when you link that to sin, body of sin, it's just like what he says later. We're going to read it in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, the sinful flesh. One author says this body of sin means the shattered character of human existence as it finds expression in the body. The shattered expression of human existence as it finds expression in the body. God says this can be brought to nothing because you are united. If you are united with Jesus 
death, and resurrection. Another way of putting brought to nothing that you might read in your Bible, it's in the Christian Standard Bible version, so that this body of sin might be rendered powerless. Rendered powerless. So what God is telling us here, brothers and sisters, is that being united with Jesus' death, because of that, we are no longer enslaved to that dominating force. We're no longer bound to bow to it. If God is convincing you that you are enslaved to sin, then there is good news. And that good news you can take hold of by grace through faith and repentance. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. A prisoner, right? Prisoner who's just been released from prison. What's the last thing they want to do when they go home? Put on an orange jumpsuit and jump in a cage, right? The last thing they want to do. A Christian doesn't want to live in sin any more than a prisoner who's just been released wants to go back and put on shackles and a jumpsuit and live in a cage behind bars. Folks, when we have been freed from slavery to sin, we do not want to go back to living in it. Amen? So Christians don't continue in sin because first, Jesus' death and life are ours by grace through faith. And secondly, because Jesus' death frees us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And thirdly, Jesus' life frees the Christian to serve Him, not sin. Right? So there is something that we have been freed from, the power of sin, and there's something now that we have been freed to. And that is to serve Jesus and not sin. So there's not like this void that happens when we're freed from sin, right? That we can use our freedom to do anything we want to do, right? No, but we are given that freedom for a purpose so that we can now serve God. We're freed from the power and penalty of sin and freed to serve Jesus. We see this in verses 10 and 11. You can read along with me. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's so important, right, brothers and sisters, that we understand that we have been united with Christ's death and resurrection through faith. But we need to remember the reason Paul even brings it up. The reason God through Paul even mentions this. And it's that we get to, the purpose is that now that we're free, we get to walk in newness of life. We get to serve Him and not sin. We get to live a new life under the direction of a new master, a good father. Verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Isn't that beautiful? 
It's not just that we've been justified by God and God says, yes, you're good. I see Jesus' perfection on you. But then He draws us in as a son and as a daughter and He says, let's walk this new life together. There's intimacy in this. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that becomes ours through faith, it marks the end of something. It marks the end of an old life. And it marks the transition of a new life where we get to live in service to a new king, King Jesus. So Christians don't continue in sin. And the idea that Christians would want to live a lifestyle of sin is so absurd and so ridiculously ridiculous first because Jesus' death and resurrection are, are ours by grace through faith. Secondly, because Jesus' death, it frees us. It breaks the power of sin. And thirdly, because Jesus' life frees us to live for Him and not for sin. So uh, I've got a six-year-old son, and uh, one of our habits, routines before bedtime is that we read books, right? Go get your books. Uh, get a bath, brush your teeth, go get your books. All right, we read books. And one of the uh, funniest books that we read from time to time is uh, The Very Impatient Caterpillar. Has anyone ever read The Very Impatient Caterpillar before? Okay, that is your non-spiritual homework, okay? It is hilarious, all right? So uh, <clears throat> I've got a couple of... Um, a couple of uh, bushes in the backyard that I planted, butterfly bushes, right? Because I love butterflies, I love, love uh, like wildlife and that sort of thing. And just had to pull one of the bushes up because I didn't give it enough water the first year. So I replaced it with a shrub that I don't have to water a whole lot. And um, anyway, uh, the reason I bring all this up is think about this caterpillar. What is something a caterpillar never does again after they become a butterfly. They don't crawl. They don't crawl, right? Well, guess what a Christian who has been rescued from death, rescued from slavery to sin, what they never do again. They don't live in sin. Butterflies don't crawl. Christians don't live in sin. It's just not who we are. It's not what we do. And the reason that we can, this is even possible is because we're united with Jesus' death and resurrection. Only because of that power, that the power of sin has been broken, that we've been given a new master, is it even possible that we don't crawl anymore? So these few verses, verses 2 through 11, they've told us what is true. And now I want us to read what to do, right? In verses 12 through 14. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, 
but under grace. You see, the problem is that no matter how absurd it is that a Christian would live in sin and have a lifestyle characterized by sin, it is still a temptation. We still have mortal bodies and we are weak and we are, we are subject to temptation, right? God knows this and this is what He tells us. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought or brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Members. What does this mean? What is God even talking about these, with these members? Well, in the same way that the word body, soma, doesn't just mean the physical body, the members here doesn't just mean the parts of our physical body, but all of our natural capacities, right? Everything in us, right? Our, uh, our heart, our mind, our speech, our mouth, our lips, right? Uh, uh, and all of our body parts, right? Instruments. What does this mean? Instruments, presenting these members as instruments. Well, it's that time of year again. Anybody been mowing their lawn? Yeah, been mowing your lawn? Raise your hand if you've got some tools to, to clean your lawn or to clean your house. Anybody got tools? Who's got tools? We got tools, okay? Some people have more tools than other. Kevin Gregory, a lot of tools. Kurt Lowry, a lot of tools, okay? All right, tools. So we, th- this is kind of what it means, instruments, right? It, an instrument is a tool or an implement to prepare something. So we understand tools, right? Members as tools. But there's another meaning of this word that's even more specific, and I think it is very much in keeping with the context and the stuff that we're reading here about reigning and dominion and kings and rulers. And it's Arms used in warfare. Weapons. Weapons. Weapons of righteousness or weapons of unrighteousness. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you have weapons or if you have used arms in warfare, but I think we get the idea, right? What does it mean to present your members as weapons of righteousness? Well, to present means to place a person or a thing at someone's disposal. To place a person or a thing at someone's disposal. So I want you to imagine with me for a second that you have been asked to appear before two rulers and you come armed to the hilt, right? Because that's who you are. You're a warrior, right? So you are fully armed, and you, I mean, you couldn't carry any more armor, right? Uh, 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 firearms or, or, or incendiaries or, or whatever, right? right? You, you're fully loaded, right? And you come before these two rulers, and you are asked to lay down to remove all of those weapons, and you got to back up a little bit because there's not enough room for all your weapons between the thrones and you, right? And you're laying these weapons before these two kings, and you were putting your weapons and yourself at the disposal of these two rulers. Well, as a Christian, every day we have a choice. Will we present the weapons, all of our faculties, all of the members of our bodies, to be used at the disposal 
of sin, our old master, or Jesus, our new king? What are the people of Point Church doing with the weapons that they've been given? The faculties that we've been given. The abilities that we've been given. Imagine a church full of people who daily present themselves, all of themselves, before God saying, I am at your disposal. Imagine the joy in a room like that. Imagine the joy in hearts like that. Imagine the power of a church like that. And imagine the impact that they would make on a community no matter where they go. So the temptation is, folks, when we read something like this, we read something like, yes, I am free from sin. I am dead to sin. I consider myself alive to God. God has given me these weapons The temptation is to wield those weapons and to use them like better and harder than we ever have before, right? But what is God telling us to do? He's saying, lay them down before me. Present them before me for my disposal. It's my fight and I will show you how to use these weapons when I need them. See, this is again not a try harder sermon, but a fall on Jesus sermon. Rely on Jesus sermon. Present your weapons, the members of your body, as weapons of righteousness. So, this might be the next step for you this morning. The question I want us to always think about at the end of a sermon is based on what. I've learned today, what will I do? What will I be? What will I believe? Based on what you've learned today, how is God prompting you to act? It might be that you need to continually place yourself every day and throughout the day at the disposal of God for righteous purposes. It might be that you need to make a habit of remembering who you are, considering yourself just like God considers you. And this might mean that you got to stop at breakfast, lunch, and dinner and in between and say, God, convince me again that I am dead to sin and alive to God. I am not enslaved to sin. I will not bow to sin. That power is broken. I am alive to God. It might be that you need to claim God's promise that sin will have no dominion over you. Again, it's only because the power that we have through Jesus' death and resurrection that this is even possible. That it's even possible that we can stop living in sin. And it might be that you need to consider the unbelievers around you enslaved to sin. To begin seeing the others who around you who do not know Jesus the way that God sees them. Just two weeks ago, Corey preached from Matthew chapter 9, where he encouraged us to have the same sight that Jesus had. When Jesus looked out among the people who didn't know Him and didn't follow Him, He, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. When we have Jesus' eyes, we see people that do not know Jesus as sheep without a shepherd wandering, and we see them as enslaved to sin. What does that do 
to our heart of compassion for them, Point Church? Do we have a burden for the people around us where we live, work, and play? Do we pray for them? Do we share with them? Do we serve and love them? Do we see them as helpless people without Jesus, enslaved to sin? Maybe we need to begin to invest in, invite, and intercede for the people around us who do not know Jesus. And maybe your next step today is to turn and to trust Jesus. To be united for the first time in your life with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and for freedom. So musicians, you guys can come on back up. Guys, during this time when we're singing, we've got Darius here on the front row. We've got William here on the second row. I'll be here on the front row to to pray with you. If one of those decisions is one of your decisions this morning, now is the time to act. To take that first step. Just one step. Maybe the idea of living a life free from domination to sin is just overwhelming to you. Going from zero to ten is just overwhelming. Well, what we're asking you to do is to go from zero to one today. To make the next step. We'll be here to pray with you. Listen, like Corey said last week, during this time we're going to sing, but it's a time of response for you to deal with Jesus. For you to encounter Jesus and to make decisions responding to what God has taught you today. Let's stand and let's pray.